Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome into the Jeff Andrea Show. Thanks so much for being with me here today. It is Monday. Hope you had a lovely weekend. It's June 22nd, so the days are just going to start getting shorter now that we've passed the uh, longest day of the year, or the day with the most daylight, if you will, the solstice now behind us. On today's show, across the country, assaults, verbal threats, graffiti, and worse actions have been directed at people of Chinese and other East Asian descent, and in higher numbers than usual, of course, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Angus Reid is out with a new survey to find out just how bad the situation is becoming, and I'll be joined by the research director of Angus Reid, Dave Korsinski, at the end of today's show. And coming up in about 15 minutes or so, I'll be joined by my usual Monday guest, Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. But to begin today's program, while the Métis Nation of B.C. is recommending the province make a tip line for anyone who's seen or experienced racism in our health care system. Reports say that ever since the health minister announced allegations of racism in the health care system on Friday, the Métis Nation has been flooded with calls. To talk more about this, I'm joined by the president of the Métis Nation of B.C., Clara Morin-Dalcole. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Jeff, for inviting me to come on. Yeah, so uh, like I said, on Friday the province announced these allegations of a game being played in hospitals where ER staff would guess the blood alcohol level of patients, particularly people who are Indigenous. I guess uh, first, before we get into the, the idea of a tip line and why that's important, what was your reaction when you saw that this announcement was being made by Health Minister Adrian Dix? I mean, uh, I, I want to say I'm not overly shocked, but uh, at the same point in time, pretty disappointing to hear that this is going on. It was very disappointing. We're not shocked. We know racism exists and continues to exist in our healthcare system, and we've known that for a long time. But for this to come out as a game in an ER, it was to it was shocking to a certain degree because mm-hmm. we were assuming and hoping that we were moving much further ahead in uh, stopping the racism, systemic racism uh, within our health. Uh, healthcare facilities so it was very disappointing to hear yeah and, and so what what kinds of calls have you been getting since then from what i understand you guys have been getting quite a few people uh, giving you a call to say hey this is something that i've experienced in in my uh, time at the hospital yes we've got we were flooded with calls as you stated uh from healthcare staff frontline uh ones working in the within the healthcare system that are indigenous that experience racism and bullying on the job and hearing from uh health staff that want to come forward but are afraid to come forward uh, afraid of losing their jobs we've had some calling in to say they did go to their supervisor and some did lose their jobs for reporting incidences of racism against indigenous people and that is unacceptable so the tip line is hugely important as i said to the minister on sunday that um we need a tip line for anyone who has uh seen or experienced racism uh that they feel safe to be able to call and uh you know, if they whistle blow, that they're not going to face any recriminations uh, about doing so. So when we're talking about this tip line, I mean, are you looking for something specifically when it comes to health care? Or is this something that you think would be just, uh, you know, if you experience racism at all inside uh, of British Columbia, that this would be something to call? 
Well, we're focusing right now on it being uh, on the healthcare, uh, you know, for healthcare mm-hmm. uh, frontline workers and people who experience that racism uh, going to a healthcare facility. Uh, you know, they feel re-victimized again when they're going in looking for uh, help. Our Indigenous people have to feel safe secure and welcome when they are seeking treatment. They shouldn't have to feel afraid and uh, re-victimized going into a healthcare system. So I'd like to see this. First of all, we have to start at the healthcare uh, system for this uh, tip line because it's a huge issue out there. Uh, what are what are your thoughts on some of the other repercussions that would come from just the fact that this this news came out here last week about this game that is being played? Like, do you foresee uh, Indigenous people maybe less willing now to go to a hospital to receive care? I mean, we live in Canada, and uh, you know, in this country, we we often pride ourselves on our healthcare system, something that everyone should and does have access to. But maybe that when you hear stories like this, I worry that it might make people a little bit more hesitant to go out and seek care. Well, you know, uh, it, it, that's what concerns me, is that they, this is going to um, cause people not to want to go in. It, we have that issue already. And like I said, this is just the tip of the iceberg, uh, this game, this Wheel of four, uh, Price is Right game that, that is being played in an ER, the tip of the iceberg. This has been going on for a long time, so we have to get more cultural awareness, cultural safety programs for healthcare workers, hospitals, doctors' offices, to ensure that our people feel culturally safe to go in. Um, when you bring up the idea of a tip line, I mean, how, how quickly do you think that something could potentially be set up? I mean, it doesn't sound like something that should take an over, you know, extensive amount of time to get up and rolling. Um, how quickly do you think something could be done if, you know, the government was on board and, and did agree with the, the BC, uh, the sorry, the Métis Nation of BC that this should be set up uh, and, and have an option for people who maybe are afraid to come forward um, to be have an avenue to do so? Uh, Well, I'm hoping this is going to be done sooner than later. We'll be looking at it tomorrow on the length of time. I know it doesn't take any time at all to set up. And I think it would be good, uh, you know, the minister appointed Mary Ellen Trapel-Lafond into uh, doing an investigation into this issue. This is something that she could be looking at. People who are willing to to come forward may be willing to talk to her also uh, to ensure that we have a voice also in in any report that comes out. Do you think that even just having this ability to report would uh, make people more comfortable when they do go into these kinds of healthcare environments? Like if 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 someone heard this story on Friday that oh my goodness if I go in and uh, you know I they're going to play a, a, a degrading game here uh, based on on my healthcare needs and and now I don't really want to go in. But if I have an ability to report something and see something, do you think that might alleviate some concern that people have and make them a little bit more willing to to go into these healthcare settings, knowing that if they do face some sort of discrimination at least they have a way to let someone know about it well that's what we're hoping for we're hoping that uh if they feel this discrimination and racism against them that they will have an avenue at least to talk about it like i said this is not new we've heard about this uh you know we've always known about this for example there was a report out in march 2019 which i seen for the first time on friday and 
where did that take? Where did that report go? Nothing was done about it. And these were all issues that were talked about in the report in March of 2019. Wow. And about the racism in the hospital settings and what, how they're treated going in. But yet we knew nothing about it. Something has to be done sooner than later. We're hearing protests out there of discrimination and racism. And, and yet, here we have this happening with our Indigenous people within this province. Yeah, I think a lot of people here in Canada like to think that maybe we're past racism somehow, but that is clearly not the case in this country. And um, yeah, I, I, it's a shame that this stuff happens and we have to talk about it, but we definitely have to get the word out in order for, for things to change. So uh, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me here, Clara. Anything else that you want to add before I let you go? I just want to uh, make sure that this is not a report that's going to sit on the shelf and collect dust that we have to move forward in implementing changes to our health care system. Well, thank you so much for your time. Hopefully, you know, we, we can get these words out that, that this kind of stuff is being called for. Get a tip line, uh, try to eradicate some of these instances of racism that we see, and hopefully this is a start. But thank you so much for your time here today. Thank you so much, Jeff. That was the president of the Métis Nation of B.C., Clara Morandel cole And, uh, yeah, just looking to set up that tip line, like I mentioned, to be able for to allow people really to come forward, um, and, you know, anonymously and, and report instances of racism. I think that would help a lot more people feel comfortable in sharing their experiences if they don't have to put their name necessarily out there. And, of course, this all stems after the announcement on Friday from Health Minister Adrian Dix talking about how, uh, you know, members of B.C. hospitals uh, sometimes play, quote, unquote, a game where they guess the alcohol level of patients that they are dealing with and that's uh, you know sparked uh, a number of conversations as a result and speaking of racism i'm going to be talking more about what's going on when it comes to anti-chinese racism or um, anti-east asian if you will as a result of covid19 things of course have gotten worse i'm going to be talking about that with angus reed in a little bit but coming up next i'll be joined by my usual monday guest kyla lee so stick around and the jeff andrea show we'll be back in a bit the voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks for being with me here on June 22nd. It is Monday, so that means it's time for my usual Monday guest here, Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, how you doing here today? I'm not bad, thanks. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time as always. Appreciate it. So... An article in McLean's magazine, it came out on Friday entitled The Nova Scotia Shooter Has Case or sorry, The Nova Scotia Shooter Case Has Hallmarks of an Undercover Operation. Uh, in it, I mean there's some pretty crazy stuff that was put out in this article. So it says sources say the cash withdrawal of four hundred seventy-five thousand dollars by the man who killed twenty-two Nova Scotians in April matches the method RCMP would use to send money to confidential informants and agents and is not an option that would be available to private banking customers. And there's actually a quote from a current RCMP. MP officer who has said, quote, I've worked a number of CI cases over the years and this is how things go. All payments are made in cash. And to me, that interaction alone proves he has a secret relationship with the force, end quote. Uh, Kyla, there's a, a lot of questions that I have coming out of this piece. Basically, you know, there's there's Mounties out there that have said originally that they have no special relationship with the shooter in this case, but now we have RCMP officers who currently work in the force saying, well, this kind of has all the signs that maybe there is some kind of a special relationship here. Um, you know, what were your thoughts when you were reading this piece? 
Well, when I first saw the piece, my, my initial thoughts were, oh my gosh, this has to be some type of conspiracy theory. But when I, when I saw that it came from McLean's, it, you know, that's a legitimate news source. Um, and they wouldn't publish something unless they had, you know, researched and, and done all of the appropriate verification. So I was shocked to read some of the things that people are saying about the potential for a relationship between the RCMP and I think and, and this individual and I think it highlights the need for greater transparency from the RCMP when they're dealing with circumstances that um, result in their undercover investigations going horribly awry. I mean, I guess, would it be possible that this is something that maybe they just wanted to keep from the public while it kind of conducts an investigation? Is that something that might have any place here at all? Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially if they're investigating something that's ongoing, um, whether it's whether it's terror-related, whether it's related to drug trafficking, whether who knows what it's related to. If the investigation is ongoing, they may want to keep this from the public and they may want to keep it quiet because they don't want to compromise the integrity of the investigation. But at the same time, this information is now out there. The public has questions. People in Nova Scotia are still grieving after what has happened here. and And we deserve to some extent to know whether this individual was involved in an RCMP investigation. Having this information out there has enough potential to compromise an ongoing investigation that it's appropriate for the RCMP to at least say, yes, we were involved with him. Yeah, and of course, none of this is, is proven or out there just yet, but obviously there is going to be more allegations that this is the case moving forward. Um, so what would I guess would be the, the responsibility or, or what do you think should be the responsibility of the RCMP when they're asked the type of question like, do you have a special relationship with this individual? And they just outright said no. Um, I mean, that's uh, essentially, I mean, again, I don't want to say that this is in fact true, but it potentially could be a lie. Is that uh, a concerning that that would be an outright lie? Wouldn't it be better just to not comment, I guess? It would be concerning if it's an outright lie, but not commenting is often interpreted as a comment in and of itself, um, as, as you know. Right. Um, and so the failure to comment might be interpreted as silence, equaling acquiescence. Um, the problem that, that I see here with the police not being transparent, particularly given the way that things went with um, with Mr. Wortman and, and the tragedy that ensued, is that there is something going on, and there is this extreme potential for violence connected in some way to something they're doing, they could run afoul of their duty to warn. And the, the police have a duty in Canada to warn the public at any point where there is a danger to public health or safety. Um, and I mean, we already saw that if this person was involved with the RCMP, that, that they didn't do anything uh, about the you know potential danger that he posed. And they may have been more aware of it than they've let on at this point. And so there is a concern that the you know if this the allegations in this piece are true that the RCMP are covering themselves from a potential lawsuit by the families of the victims yeah and then if you want to get into further details and talking about informing the public when there is a potential threat i mean we know that the situation and, and when it was all happening wasn't handled uh, overly well i don't think by police when it comes to informing the public that there was uh, you know a potential life threatening uh, situation that that was happening at that time. So, yeah, a lot of questions I think that are being raised here as a result of this, and and you know we really probably want, especially for the people in Nova Scotia, they just want answers. They just want to get to bo to the bottom of of what all happened here in this case that happened in April. Of course, a horrific incident, uh, one of the or the biggest mass killing in in Canada. Um, 
by use of a, a firearm. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible story and one that I think we all want to have answers to. And, and this just raises a lot more questions now uh, than answers here. So that's uh, that's concerning to me. Anything else that you took out of this that you wanted to highlight here? Because that was the big thing for me was just that, you know, potentially this guy is an RCMP uh, informant or, or a confidential informant or, or some sort of relationship that he had with police. And yet, you know, the, the, the fact that the police are just saying no, that they didn't have one. I mean, that's really the biggest thing that, that came out of it for me. Anything else that you wanted to bring up for, from this? Well, I think, you know, where somebody is withdrawing large quantities of cash in excess of $400,000, it's not as though those transactions would have gone unnoticed by police to begin with. So you have to assume that at the point in time that the money is being withdrawn and even at the point in time that the money is being accumulated, um, the some government agency was aware of that fact um, and was to some extent, investigating or monitoring it. So I think even just the fact of the, the cash transaction suggests that there's a lot more to this story that we're not mm-hmm. being told, whether it's from the RCMP or somebody else. Right. Well, hopefully one day we'll get some, some clarity on what's going on. I don't know if that's going to be happening anytime soon, but uh, maybe one day we'll, we'll see some more answers there. I did also want to ask you too, Kyla, while I have you, there was a, a, a story I read here last week talking about uh, two BC parents who hosted a birthday party back in, in 2012. They had minors uh, at this birthday party who were who were drinking alcohol and smoking some pot at this party um and and what ended up happening was they, these two kids ended up leaving the party on foot they they walked to the party and then and then they said they were leaving and as they were leaving the party they decided it would be a good idea to steal a station wagon and then ended up crashing that station wagon uh killing one and severely injuring the other uh person involved so the very very horrific accident that happened as a result of minors who were drinking and smoking at a party um and you you know, we've heard many a times, at least in my experience, when talking about the responsibility of people who are hosting a party, that you know they could potentially be found liable for whatever happens when people leave. Uh, but in this case, the judge found that you know that's not the case. There was no um, the, the the people who were hosting this party, the two parents involved, wouldn't have had any um, you know involvement or or shouldn't be held responsible for the fact that these kids stole a station wagon. I don't know if you've read the piece and and what are your thoughts on this because I think that it kind of changes how I interpret what the uh, uh, reliability of a host actually is. I think that the decision that came from the court made the right call um, and essentially came down to the parents who were hosting the party acting reasonably. Um, on the one hand, the plaintiffs were arguing that uh, there should be an increased duty of care. So the, the standard of intervention to keep people from driving after drinking should be greater when it's adults hosting a party where minors are drinking. And the court rejected that notion. Um, they essentially said that it's just what a reasonable person would do in the circumstance. And the parents that were hosting the party uh, took steps to take everybody's keys away. The people arrived at the party on foot, left on foot, and you can't be held responsible for something that somebody goes and does while they're intoxicated that you couldn't reasonably foresee that they were going to do, like stealing a station wagon and crashing it. Um, And I I think that's an appropriate place to draw the line um, because it gives people who are hosting parties a clear indication of what it is their responsibilities are. Do what you can to make sure that the people who are leaving are not leaving in a car. Um, What happens after that, if they go get into a car somewhere else, you shouldn't have to be responsible for. 
Yeah, and I think that's a, a good note here. I know, it, you know, as, as everything's closed, a lot fewer people are gathering at bars and clubs these days. You can't gather at a club at all these days. So I'm sure a lot more people are looking to be hosting some house parties pretty soon. And this is, I think, just a, a good message for people to be to, to be mindful of. You know, what are your responsibilities as a host? Well, you know, if you make sure that everyone leaves uh, safely, what happens after that is not necessarily your fault. So I think that's an important step for, for people to know about. Well, Kyla, thank you so much for your time, as always. Really appreciate you coming on here and uh, look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you for having me. Awesome. That is Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. All right, I got to take one more break, but when I come back, well, Angus Reed is out with a new survey looking at racism within the Chinese community or the East Asian community, if you will, and how things have gotten worse as a result of COVID 19. I'll be talking with research director Dave Korzynski after this, so stick around. Opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks for being with me here on Monday. As we've gone through the COVID-19 pandemic, it has brought forward other problems that many in this province and country face, and that is racism, of course, and in particular, anti-Asian racism. New data from the nonprofit Angus Reid Institute reveals the experiences and emotions of those directly affected. 516 Canadians who identify as ethnically Chinese were surveyed. And I'm joined on the line now to talk more about the results of that survey by Angus Reid Research Director Dave Korzynski. Dave, thanks so much for taking the time. I'm doing quite well. Thanks for having me. Hey, really appreciate you taking the time. So um, I guess just let me start by asking just on an overall sense here, how widespread from your research is the issue of anti-Chinese racism right now here in Canada? Yeah, I think it, it's pretty significant. So there's a couple of, of really obvious kind of top line findings that give you a sense of just how much uh, Chinese Canadians have, have kind of faced uh, over the course of the last three months. So we asked them uh, these statements and said, because of your ethnicity during the COVID-19 pandemic, have you been, you know, A, B, or C? And what you see is that about 64% say that they have, on a six-point scale, say that they have um, either been treated with with less respect than other people at a four, five, or six level. So it gives you a sense of of the frequency of it. Um, The same thing goes for uh, being called names or insulted. 50% of them say that that is something that has happened to them regularly. Uh, Personal threats and intimidation are also common. 43% chose a four, five, or a six on that scale as to just how often that has happened to them. So there's a significant group of the the um, ethnically Chinese community that are facing real repercussions from this, and um, a lot of that, you know, has to do with just the way that that um, they feel the country and the community has been treated in the media. Very, really, overwhelmingly uh, negative sentiments about how they feel um, they've been portrayed and what it has led to. You know, you've got about 90% of Chinese uh, Canadians saying that they feel that the media coverage has kind of exacerbated this and and made it worse. Um, You know, the most obvious example of that, uh, again, over the weekend, uh, the President Donald Trump um, using some some terminology that is uh, quite uncouth, you, you would say, 
um, to describe the virus. And there's just these things have a real world effect. So we wanted to put some uh, some statements out there and just see how widespread they were. And it appears that a lot of people are having a, a very difficult time in, in these communities. Yeah, and and so when you bring up the point about media coverage, too, this was something I wanted to kind of get into a little bit. Uh, You mentioned Donald Trump, right, referring to this as the the Chinese flu at at times and, and, you know, a number of other um, degrading terms, I guess you could say, uh, when it comes to where the virus particularly started and the concerns that, uh, you know, he puts forward to others when it comes to that. I guess, is that really the main point of contention when we're talking about the media coverage? Is that what you heard from respondents was, um, you know, it's it's more... geared towards what's happening in the states or or you know do you have any ideas sort of what the the issue around the portrayal of COVID-19 has been here when it comes to racism in Canada? Yeah, I think the sense is just that um, Chinese Canadians feel to a large extent blamed for COVID-19. Okay. They feel um, in one of those statements was that whether you feel that uh, Canadians blame uh, people of Chinese ethnicity for this. Um, and, and you've got, I'm just doing a quick math, 55% say that um, they feel the Canadians blame people of Chinese ethnicity. And I think um, part of the the thing that might might be, you know, absent in the media coverage is just the fact that, you know, that that's not necessarily how how the virus is being spread in, in Canada. You know, there's a lot of transmission from Washington. This is a very complex kind of issue of, of how communities have been affected. Um, and I think that just based on what the media chooses to cover, um, in particular, some of the stories coming out of south of the border, people feel that, that the coverage just hasn't done enough to kind of, um, I guess, make uh, Chinese Canadians feel comfortable and, and feel like they're not to blame. And a lot of these stories that you hear is just people telling uh, you know, Chinese Canadians on the street to go back where they came from or, or avoiding them on the street. Or, um, you know, we have one person who says that they were spit at by a person on, on a bicycle driving by. So there, there are a lot of, of cases where people feel very blamed. Um, and I think that they see the media as kind of uh, either complacent or, you know, active in, in uh, kind of propelling that portion of the story. Um, I think that that's kind of what we're seeing in the fact that so many people feel that there's uh, a, a role to play there from the media. Yeah, that's totally fair. And, and uh, the point you made there about where the virus has really come from, I remember, I think it was about uh, two weeks ago now, almost two weeks ago, where Dr. Bonnie Henry did some new modeling and showed us sort of where the strains of coronavirus were coming from, and they were mostly European or coming up from Washington. Very little was actually coming via China itself. So, yeah, definitely interesting from that perspective that it's not really coming from China, at least what we're seeing here in British Columbia. Um, I did want to ask, too, just a little bit about how people are feeling when it just comes to being welcomed. I know, like, I was looking at some of the data in your survey, and, um, you know, probably the vast majority, or about half, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, of of those respondents were actually born in Canada, but many don't feel like they are treated as being Canadian, which I think is a real shame. This is their home, this is their country, and and a lot of them seem to feel like maybe they're not welcome here. Um, You know, what what was your data unveiling in that regard when it comes to people who are, you know, full-on Canadian, born and bred Canadians, but, you know, do have that Chinese descent and, and really not uh, being welcomed here by, by other people in this country. Yeah, yeah. Um, to, your, to that point, we had 44% who were born in Canada and then, you know, a significant portion of people who were born in either China or Hong Kong or another country um, 
who had been here for longer than 20 years. So they, they feel, um, you know, 88% of, of the sample of the 516 people that we talked to said that being Canadian is an important part of, of their identity. Uh, 84% said they feel a strong sense of belonging to Canada. Um, and we had this question that we asked in 2016 just as um, kind of a question where we wanted to compare people across age demographics and provinces of to what extent do you think that other people in the country see you as Canadian, just to see if there were any generational uh, issues in, in the gen, gen pop. And we had 47% of non-visible minority respondents uh, in 2016 said that they felt that they were viewed as Canadian all the time. So basically half of Canadians. When you ask Chinese Canadians um, whether they feel that they're viewed as fully Canadian, only 13% choose that. So really significant, more than three times uh, the number uh, when you look at the non-visible minority respondents, 47 versus 13. Whereas um, for Chinese Canadians, they, they feel... Um, about half of them say that they, they feel they're viewed as mostly Canadian. Um, but we were having this discussion in the office about, you know, you don't mostly pay taxes and you don't mostly live here for, for 30 years. Um, so there is a real disparity in the way that Chinese Canadians feel that they're viewed in Canada. And I think that some of that disconnect really speaks to um, why people tend to, uh, you know, lash out at, at people in this community because they do view them as, you know, other. Uh, 24% of them actually say that they feel like an outsider in Canada, um, which is, you know, even even 21% of those who were born in Canada uh, but have Chinese ethnicity say that they feel like an outsider in this country. So that, that gives you a real sense of, of just kind of how, how widespread the alienation is. And, and I think that speaks to why so much abuse kind of takes place um, when, when people are, are made to feel as that they're not, they don't have a rightful place yeah. in Canada. They're just kind of here. So I think that's something really important to considering your interactions with people in your own community. There are different ways that, that we can make people feel very comfortable. Sometimes it's as simple as, as waving and saying hi. It just makes people feel like they're uh, an integral part of the community. So I think that's really important to remember is that a lot of people feel uh, quite like an outsider uh, in their own community. Uh, Dave, last question here for you, but just, you know, obviously it's terrible that, that uh, people don't feel welcome here in their own own country and, and don't feel like they are necessarily um, belong at times, which is a real shame. But how has, you know, this feeling and, and the, the, the experience of racism, how has it changed people's behaviors? I saw one of the things in the survey talked about, you know, people have started taking different routes to work and things like that in order to avoid, um, you know, meeting up with certain people or, or going down to certain places where they feel they might be more likely to be attacked, I guess, based on their race. You know, what kind of things did you see in your data that really showed people are, are altering their behaviors in order to try and avoid, um, you know, having these, these moments of racism? Yeah, that was the biggest one is just that people have really changed their routines. And that might be something as simple as you used to go for a walk on a certain route and now you're not taking that route anymore. You're taking more back streets or you're trying not to go to the grocery store at certain times. Um, 30% of people say that they, they have made, you know, considerable changes to their routines based on um, just trying to avoid racism and discrimination, whereas 31% say that that has been a consideration. It's not something that they've done regularly, but it's still something that kind of weighs on them and something they think about. And it was really as simple as we, we asked this one question in the survey, which was, um, 
say you're you're walking in a grocery store and you know you have to pass by somebody um these are obviously very difficult times for everybody at the grocery store um but uh about i believe about 40 to 50 percent of chinese canadians said that they felt uncomfortable and that that person was really just based on their ethnicity um was was uncomfortable walking past them and would try to kind of create extra space more so than they would if, if somebody who was caucasian so these are just things that are uh in in chinese canadians um kind of day-to-day life right now these calculations that they're that are, are made which is not being able to just go about your, your day-to-day life and and consider social distancing just for what it is but there's also this extra element of uh discrimination um and there's a lot of you know discomfort and embarrassment and, and these types of things that we found in the data where people were were voicing that they just felt really uncomfortable kind of being out in public um so again something to to kind of consider uh when when you're out in your day-to-day life uh, it, it is a very difficult time for some people um in addition to just how hard it is for everybody there is that this extra aspect of it if you are a uh, a person uh, of Asian descent is it's been very tricky to navigate and, and there's been a lot of abuse to to try to avoid well Dave thank you so much for taking the time and, and highlighting some key points here in this survey hopefully things will change soon but uh, yeah it's definitely a, a tough one uh, but I think it's important to really know just how widespread these concerns are in, in our community so thank you so much for your time really appreciate it yeah thank you anytime that was research director with the Angus Reed Institute Dave Korzynski. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today, so I want to thank all my guests for joining me, and of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening, and remember, whether you join me here for a short while or a long while, just know that I enjoyed our time while it lasted.